0: Thank you for joining us for another Hagley History Hangout. My name is Gregory Hargreaves, Assistant Director of the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. Now, you know, during these History Hangouts, we like to bring you some of the great work being done by folks who have used the historical collections held at the Hagley Library as part of their research, especially scholars who have received support to the form of research grants and fellowships of different kinds from the Hagley Center. One such scholar joins me today, a great friend of Hagley, Jennifer Black is Associate Professor of History at Misericordia University. Jennifer, thanks for joining me today.
1: Hi, Greg. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here.
0: Oh, you're so welcome. Uh, let's start um, by hearing about your new book you have coming out in December.
1: Yeah, thanks. So um, I, the book is coming out with the University of Pennsylvania Press. Uh, the title is Branding Trust, Advertising and Trademarks in 19th Century America. And this is a project that I've been working on for, gosh, over a decade, (laughs) Um, it turns out. Um, But I'm really excited about it. Uh, The book looks at the origins of branding and trademark law in the United States in the 19th century and traces the parallel developments of the gradual, visually centered advertising regime that we're very familiar with today. Um, and the simultaneous developments of trademark law at the same Mm. time. And so one of the things that the book argues is that the processes for branding developed very slowly and incrementally over time with a variety of disparate players and actors involved in making innovations at various nodes in the network uh, at sort of um, different intervals that some would would sort of not be successful innovations and others would. And gradually those innovations came together over time. Um, so that's one argument that the book makes. But I also really emphasize the ways in which branding as a practice grew out of modes of establishing rapport, and communicating one's reputation in order to earn trust from others in American society. And so of course that grows out of the 19th century middle-class culture of character and honor that structured a lot of social interactions, particularly in the antebellum period. So the book begins in the 1830s and looks at the first advertising agent, Volney Palmer, who, um, who sort of innovated a lot of these, these processes and practices. And it follows the development of trademark law, the gradual integration of more images and entertainment as a component of advertising Mm -hmm. um, through uh, the final case study, um, which looks at Nabisco in the early 20th century and how the first trademark law in 1905 changed the regime.
0: Mm -hmm. Could you perhaps tell us a little bit more about Palmer, this early uh, uh, strategist and innovator in this area?
1: Yeah. So Volney Palmer is a really interesting character. He's born in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, which is actually just down the road from Misericordia, where I teach, in 1799. And his father is a newspaper man. And Mm -hmm. he begins his career working with his father um, at the newspaper in Wilkes-Barre. And uh, eventually he opens a newspaper business with his brother in Pottsville, he dabbles in the real estate speculation game in the early 1830s, right before the panic, and he loses a lot in the panic. And um, one of the things that I'm still trying to parse out is is I think that he's uh, I think that he had to sell his entire house essentially and and all of his possessions. Uh, and moved to Philadelphia. And so by the early 1840s, he's living in Philadelphia, and he's running a coal office. And he's serving as an agent, a sales agent for the coal companies in northeastern Pennsylvania, who are mm-hmm. whose anthracite coal is becoming very, very a hot commodity. And he starts leveraging that, that relationship with the coal companies. He's also involved in a canal through the Lehigh Valley as a treasurer. And he starts leveraging that relationship to, to try to get urban wholesalers and merchants and manufacturers to advertise in rural newspapers. Hmm. And so he uses his connections from the newspaper business to get uh, to kind of hook these two people up, right? To kind of connect them, and he pitches it as a win-win situation. Look. If you're the urban wholesaler, I'm going to get you increased demand in the rural counties outside of Philadelphia for your products. And if you're a rural newspaper man, I'm going to get you valuable advertising revenue from these urban wholesalers, and you'll be able to introduce new products to your, your constituents. Mm. And you know, it, it becomes kind of a win-win situation. And he, sit, he situates himself as a middleman. He acts as a currency exchange for some people. He's a really kind of wacky guy, but a very astute businessman. And one of the things that he did is he really played up these middle-class codes of character. Hmm. So he's very clear to emphasize certain language cues in his advertisements um, to try to sell an entrepreneurial spirit or advertising as part of an entrepreneurial spirit in the early 19th century. So he says things like, shrewd men of small capital know the value of advertising right and mm-hmm. so he's trying to convince his readers that you too could be a shrewd man with small capital right and profit from advertising um so he really lays the groundwork i think for a lot of the developments that we see later in advertising in terms of uh, convincing manufacturers and merchants that they should advertise but he mm-hmm. also uses a lot of the cues as I said to demonstrate his own character as a middle-class educated man so he uses mm. very proper language he draws from the etiquette of letter writing in crafting his advertisements and these innovations or tactics I argue are part of what makes him successful because he's speaking to like-minded readers mm-hmm. in a language they would understand He's trying to reach other middle-class businessmen by saying, look, I'm a respectable businessman. You can trust me. Mm -hmm. Here's all the things I provide. And here's the way that my services will be helpful
0: for you. Mm. And that's also a way of building trust, right? Across a marketplace that is defined by anonymous uh, exchanges, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I'm really trying to push against one of these predominant narratives that we read in graduate school, right, about um, about the market being sort of very personal and face-to-face based in the early 19th century and growing more impersonal as the century progresses, so that by the Gilded Age, this is the way the narrative goes, mm-hmm. by the Gilded Age, you know, marketers and merchants are trying to speak to people who anonymously through these channels and so that's where trademarks come in and and that they need to kind of do the work that face-to-face relations did before but if we go back and read the literature on business in in the early 19th century and even in the colonial period the american market was always anonymous right we always Mm -hmm. had things coming from the empire Coming from distant manufacturers who couldn't speak directly to the consumers, right? Josiah Wedgwood. Why did people want his stuff? It wasn't because they knew him personally in the <laughs> colonies, right? It wasn't because they like they had been his factory and they knew that it was a, a reputable <laughs> enterprise. They trusted the brand, and so that's one of the things that I'm I'm also trying to tease out in this book is. How did early advertisers do that hmm. um, after the revolution? And Volney Palmer is really a key figure for demonstrating that.
0: Well, that's just such a fascinating story. Well, what changes do occur during this period um, that you've um, defined for your book?
1: Yeah, so the book looks, it really begins with the panic of of um, 1836, 37, mm-hmm. and, and looking at how that economic anxiety that is filtering through American society pushes a a kind of new kind of communication. And Palmer is is one key figure in the beginning of that story. And so one of the things that happens is Palmer, like I said, he's using these language codes of the middle class, Mm -hmm. and he's drawing on letter writing etiquette and other Um, elements of the culture of sentiment and the culture of sincerity and the culture of character to really demonstrate his own class status and speak to like-minded readers on a business-to-business kind of channel. And what happens with trademark law is that the judges who are hearing the first trademark cases in the United States, which are also in the 1840s, they are also applying middle-class codes of ethics and character in deciding whether or not a trademark and pr- alleged trademark infringement is actually infringement, right? Whether the economic behavior of certain actors is ethical. And, <clears throat> excuse me. And so those judges are applying those same cultural ideas when they're adjudicating the first cases. And when they do that, those ideas become part of the legal precedent that Mm -hmm. will then continue to develop and build over the course of the 19th century. So that by the time we get to 1905, with the first trademark law in the United States, they've got 75 years or so of of legal precedents that were fundamentally based on middle class ideas about etiquette and ethical business practice. Mm. And so those ideas get concretized into federal law. Um, through this kind of like gradual development. The other thing that the book demonstrates and traces is the, the ways in which advertising visually shifts over the course of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. So we move from, you know, kind of picture a colonial newspaper with your long list of goods, right? Um, or even in the 1830s, a sort of like classified advertisement with its very small. Um, Agate type and, you know, that very, very small print and the kind of rows and rows of, of regulated columns. How do we get from that to full page advertisements in the 1920s? Mm-hmm. And there's a gradual shift there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that comes out of innovations made primarily by printers, first, I argue, and newspaper editors, some of whom are very flexible and willing to print different kinds of advertisements and one of the things that I show is that they use the typefaces themselves first to create visual interest in the newspapers. So they use italics, they use bold fonts, they use all caps, they use new fonts that are weird and interesting, they (laughs) use extra white space, right? Mm -hmm. And all of these things are tactics designed to draw the eye to the page so advertising of the course in the 19th century becomes more visual and the book explains how and why and there's lots of fun images along the way too so
0: oh that's great and when is the book coming out
1: it comes out in december uh i'm very excited it's i think it's going to be early december but i don't have an exact publication date yet but it is available for pre-order on the university of pennsylvania press's website and i think it may also be available for pre-order on amazon
0: oh that's great what is the title again
1: the title again is "Branding, Trust, Advertising, and Trademarks in Nineteenth Century America."
0: Oh, that's great! I can't wait to read it. Well, Thank what you. It, yeah. Oh, well, what is it you're working on next?
1: Yeah. So you know, labor of love for the last ten years, right? And I thought, what am I going to do now? Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been very interested in counterfeit goods, and that's something that the book does talk about—is some counterfeit goods with the trademark lawsuits. But when I was doing my initial research. Um, at the Winterthur, right down the road from you, a curator brought out a Tiffany tea service set that had been faked. Mm. And I was really fascinated by this. And I thought, you know, like, where does that come from, right? I mean, obviously somebody made it because they're trying to copy off of Tiffany, of the, the brand name of Tiffany, the reputation of Tiffany, the cachet, the prestige, Right. And there's this really beautiful set, um, a tea service, silver tea service set with a dragonfly motif on it. And the curator was very patient and kind with me and showed me all the ways that it was wrong. You know, Mm -hmm. well, this mark is wrong and see here where it's welded. It should be chased. And, you know, the the production elements were wrong. And I said, well, you know, if this thing is junk, you know, if it's not real, why do you keep it? She said, well, it's useful for teaching students and you know, connoisseurship. And, mm-hmm. But I was really interested in the market aspects mm-hmm. of the production of fakes. And so my next project is kind of growing out of that experience, which I really didn't get to write about in this book. But the next project is tentatively called Consuming Deception. And it's going to be about the production and circulation of these fake commodities in American okay. society and American commercial culture. And so I've been thinking about, well, how can I get at this, right? I have the lawsuits. uh, And one of the things that I looked at when I was at the Hagley this summer was DuPont's really strong efforts to police their brand and Hmm. their formula for the gunpowder manufacturing by weeding out people who were trying to um, build on the DuPont name. Hmm. So either by putting their own gunpowder in DuPont kegs, like used kegs, um, the barrels with the DuPont marks on them, or trying to copy the DuPont mark onto other barrels and and put it on there. And and some of the correspondence in the DuPont records is really detailed and granular and very interesting. And they have analyses done, and this is in the early 19th century, they have analyses done on these kegs and they're, we're sure that this keg was never in our manufactory, right? Um, And so this is all fascinating to me. And so I started, I really started researching this project in earnest last year. And I was on sabbatical this past semester. And I I hit a bunch of different archives. I was at the Getty. I was at the New York Public Library. And I spent some really wonderful time at the Hagley trying to consider all of the facets of what this project could be. And so I'm thinking about ways to, and I'm very still much in the early stages, but I'm thinking about ways that counterfeit commodities get produced. Who are the producers? Why do they begin producing these things? How do they infiltrate the market and begin promoting their counterfeit goods? What is the incentive for consumers to buy the counterfeit goods? Are they dupes, which is kind of like the, um, you know, uh, like the Frankfurt School imp- interpretation of this, right, that consumers, Horkheimer and Adorno argue that we're all just sort of like slaves to the machine, right? Like we're, we're just being duped on and on again with the commercial culture. And, you know, are, are they really being duped or do they know that it's a fake and do they seek out the fake? Because we all know people today mm-hmm. who walk down the street in New York City or in Philadelphia and there's street vendors trying to sell you the fake Prada bag. And you look at it and you're like, you can't even tell it's a fake, right? Oh, I can get this for $20. Yeah, I want it, right? So there is something desirable about the fakes.
2: Mm-hmm. Not,
1: It's not just money. It's not just about money making and trying to cheat people, although well, that's a really big part of it. So I've spent time in the past several months researching all kinds of different things, art forgery. Mm. So I, I kind of, I went down one tangent on on art forgery and um, and considering the ways in which the market for old masters really stimulates forgery in the United States Mm -hmm. in the early part of the 19th century and patent infringement, which, of course, the DuPonts are very strong on. And um, there's another collection at the Hagley. The uh, it's at the S.S. White I think dental records. There's a company, a dental company, whose records are at the Hagley, and they were very stringent on policing their their brand and their formulae. Of course, people have written about Goodyear tires and mm-hmm. and the process of vulcanization, and Goodyear trying to police that. And this dental company gets involved with a lot of that because dentists are some of the primary users of, of rubber weirdly Hmm. uh, in the 19th and early 20th century. So they get involved in that too. So I spent quite a bit of time reading a lot of correspondence from the DuPont records this summer, um, reading up on art forgery, considering collectors uh, and and thinking about how fake things come into museum collections and i'm also really interested in the market for antiquities that develops in the mid 19th century mm-hmm. and how fakes kind of get produced around that too so there's going to be a lot of different facets i definitely want to come back to the hagley i was really i was there for a week but i looked at so much and i was sort of like furiously gathering <laughs> on my exploratory grant and I must've taken over 700 photographs while I was there. And I looked, I think I looked at, I counted it like something like 35 archival boxes of material, but there's some really interesting stuff. And so I definitely, I definitely see myself coming back.
0: (laughs) It seems like this project dovetails in a really uh, interesting way with your earlier project on branding and trust, Um, especially it seems Uh, the brand would have to already have a well-established value for counterfeiting it to be worthwhile. Is is that, am I reading that correctly?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So that is 100% correct. Um, There've been scholars who've argued that the trademark law stimulated a branding regime. Um, This is sort of a legal scholar argument um, that the law came first and stimulated business practice and And because the law enabled it, people then built their brands. Several folks have argued that about the Lanham Act in 1946, which is the sort of modern branding act in in the Mm -hmm. United States. But I would argue that the brands have to come first because there has to be a reason to fake it. You know, there has to be a a reason to copy it. And there has to be a reason to want to protect that trademark Mm -hmm. because people are copying it. Right. So... Um, you know, I, I, I would argue that the reputation of the brand, the goodwill of the brand has to come first um, to sort of create that impetus for folks to want to cheat the corners and and copy it. So, for example, the first trademark lawsuit in the United States, mm-hmm. um, the first real important one, I would argue, is um, Taylor v. Carpenter, and it's in the 1840s. And it, there's actually multiple iterations of this. Uh, it's first filed, I think, in 1844, but then an appeal in 1846. And there's, there's um, the Taylors are a thread manufacturer in England, and they file against Daniels Carpenter, who is a, a local producer in Massachusetts. Hmm. But they file in federal court in Massachusetts, and they file in state court in New York almost at the same time. And so the two cases are kind of going back and forth, and then there's, like I said, multiple appeals, and it takes several years to sort out. But one of the things that that they argue in that case is that the Taylors has had built up this very important reputation around their Persian thread. That was the, the, the brand name of their thread, Taylors Persian Thread. And that it was six cord thread and it was very durable and it was highly desirable by consumers. People would go to shops and ask for it by name. And Carpenter, who's this, um, he, a, he also has a very interesting story. He's, he fights in the War of 1812. He's a very um, successful straw farmer. He farms straw and hay. For um, the the straw hat factories near Foxboro, Massachusetts, hmm. but then he loses his farm at some point. I think during the panics in, in the 1830s, and by the early 1840s, he's secured a position for himself in a thread, a local thread Um, So we've got Lowell, right, and and textile production in Massachusetts, and he gets a position, and he begins to counterfeit the labels for taylor's persian thread and stick them on domestically produced labels and the argument that he tries to make is that well you know they're foreign so i can just copy them because they don't have rights here and the judge is like no actually that's not true (laughs) and then you know there's a whole other host of arguments that he makes, but he's got access, he's got opportunity, he's got the knowledge of the industry because he's already working in the textile manufacturing. And um, this case, I think, demonstrates how that, that goodwill of the Taylor's brand is already there and is providing an impetus for, first, the counterfeiter to try to cut corners. It's very easy To build upon somebody else's goodwill by just pretending to be them, right? It takes a lot more money and capital and effort um, and time and energy to build your own reputation and get your name out in the public and get people to try your products and then talk about it, right? It's much easier just to say you're somebody else. And so it's clearly there's a a money making venture to be had here. And um, so carpenter cuts corners and he essentially borrows the the cultural capital the reputation of the tailors and this case had has wide-reaching implications and alfred dupont writes about it hmm. in his correspondence he's he's writing to his lawyer um i think is is edward gilpin i think is the lawyer um and he's he writes to the lawyer and you know, and the lawyer writes back and says, well, there was this case that just happened in Massachusetts, and I think it could help you with what you're going through in Kentucky, because there was some guy in Kentucky who was faking DuPont things. And and so it, it's, it has these wide-ranging implications and really becomes a key point in the development of branding and, and trademarks in the United States. So, yeah, absolutely. The brand has to come first. Right. The goodwill of the brand has to come first. And the law is late to follow.
0: <laughs> no, that may, makes perfect sense, especially given a legal regime meant to protect property. Uh, the property has to exist in, in the first place to be protected. Yes.
1: Yes. <laughs> and it has to be recognized as such, right? It has mm-hmm. to be recognized as intellectual property. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, what a great series of projects.
1: No, thank you. Yeah. I'm really. I'm really looking forward to this next project. And like I said, I can't wait to get back to the Hagley and get into the archives. I've got microfilmed lawsuits to look at. I've got correspondence to look at. And it's such a wonderful place to do research. So I can't thank you enough for, for inviting me and giving this opportunity to talk about my work.
0: Oh, you're welcome. And thanks for saying so. And um, for the audience, if you would like more Hagley History Hangouts, more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, join us online. You can visit Hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. Don't be a stranger.